This is hell. Sebastian, I broke my travel coffee mug yesterday, and so today I'm just drinking out of a regular coffee mug, and I carried a thermos of coffee over here. What do you think is the likelihood that I will be spilling this cup of coffee this morning? Uh, 30 to 70, I would say. All right, thank you very much. I appreciate the confidence (laughs) in me. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hell, streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week. At thisishell.com, the world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Twice weekly on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com. Thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at bewaretheradio.com. We are now airing on CKUWFM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the United of the University of Winnipeg. If you would like to hear this is hell on your favorite local public radio station or community radio station, email us at chuck at thisishell.com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to our show and why you'd love to hear it carried in your community. Again, just email us at chuck at thisishell.com and we'll do everything we can to make it so you can hear This Is Hell over the air where you live. The word hack has many meanings. A hack can be when using a computer to gain unauthorized access to data in a system. A hack can also be a strategy or technique for managing one's time or activities more efficiently. This brings us to so-called life hacks, which are about eliminating life's frustrations in simple and clever ways. But for some, life can be far more frustrating than it is for others. With the world so inaccessible to the disabled, for example, every day can be filled with hacks simply to exist and survive. A daily routine for the disabled can be nothing but hacks, nothing but repeated frustrations that need to be overcome just to get through your day. Of course, it doesn't have to be like this, and there was the promise of the Americans with Disabilities Act to help the disabled overcome these frustrations. However, with the ADA, while the ADA may apply to public spaces, it doesn't apply to private residences where the disabled like most people, spend the majority or at least a plurality of their day. Homes are not built to be dis- disabled compliant, which again can make life very frustrating. As a disabled person myself, I'm legally blind uh, due to optic nerve atrophy, which causes 2200 vision, intense light sensitivity, complete color blindness, and problems with depth perception. I regularly engage in hacks to survive. The process to cross a major street uh, with walk and don't walk signs can be absolutely frightening. But over the years, I've figured out ways to cross without getting myself killed up until now. It's not just crossing the street or domestic life that can cause challenges for the disabled. It's the entire U.S. healthcare system and the medical supply chain that the disabled have to hack to make life possible. But why does it have to be this way? Why does life have to be so frustrating and inaccessible for the disabled? We'll find out in a few minutes when we speak with writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. 
This article is part of a project funded by the Social Science Research Council. Virtual interviews and home visits were conducted with 44 caregivers and their partners, when possible, across 22 states to ask them about their caregiving experiences. Participants also provided photos of their homes and hacks. In compliance with research ethics, all names are pseudonyms in this article and all of the writing and research done. For an archive of detailed examples of disability hacks sourced from the spousal caregivers and disabled folks who participated in this research, you can visit disabilityathome.org. Laura is an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies and human development and family sciences at the University of Connecticut. She is currently writing a book that tells the stories of disabled people and caregivers as they try to survive in an ableist America. Laura works across the humanities in fields such as deaf and disability studies, as well as the social sciences. Laura's scholarly work focuses on how science, technology, and medicine shape contemporary life and is based on the contention that disability is a political and social category that intersects with all other social categories. She often investigates how ableism structures our lives by examining the experiences and expertise of family caregivers, disabled people in their communities. Laura is also a nationally certified American Sign Language interpreter. Find out more about Laura at lauramalden.com. That's M-A-U-L-D-I-N.com. And find out more about Laura, uh, follow her, sorry, on Twitter at Malden underscore Laura. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, how was your weekend? Yeah, it was very good. It was very good. Uh, me and the wife, we went on an extended tour of... Um, kind of close suburbs for like a variety of errands um and we ended up at uh the village discount outlet store in little village um oh, wow. so like village discount is like a chain of right. thrift stores and like in little village they have one that's like three stories of it's massive yeah it's, it's been there for a long time it's really huge i haven't been down there for a long time did you find anything oh yeah 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 like i just i just i just was like i, I used to buy a lot of just clothes there because you know grad student budget and now I'm like well i i need like new shirts and shorts and stuff and i was like if i buy that new a i'd have no real like i don't know what's out there in terms of style and then it's just like whatever and it's also kind of expensive and also you know like you're supposed to buy used things when it comes right. to clothes because less of a carbon footprint yeah kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and so i mean it's and I'm, of course, I found stuff there because how can you not find stuff? <laughs> exactly, there? exactly. Um, so yeah, so that was a pretty successful, you know, Sunday. Afterwards, we tested out the uh, restaurant that we want to uh, cater our wedding, Edel Edelweiss, German restaurant in. Uh, oh, I keep forgetting where that is. Is it out in Berwyn? Is it in the city? No, no, no. It's, I think it's in Norwich or something. Okay. So, yeah, it was pretty good. Awesome. I got to check that place out. I really love uh, German food. Uh, since the Brauhaus left, I've been very upset. All we have left is Lachette's, and I think there's another German place here in town, but I can't remember. So many places have gone by the wayside. My weekend was uh, great, and uh, that makes five straight enjoyable weekends for me, which is definitely a record for me in 2022 following multiple surgeries and medical procedures that so far... I guess they seem to be going well. I mean, this weekend I kind of pulled a muscle in my stomach right around where my surgery happened. So, I don't know. 
Anyway, it, it it wasn't just an enjoyable weekend simply simply because I was not in as much pain as I have been in the past six months. It was also because I had a very productive weekend, uh, trying or I should say tying up many of my life's loose ends. As I said during the Patreon podcast last week, it was supposed to be a weekend of getting my act together, but I, I said this during the Patreon podcast, so instead of saying... I was trying to get my act together. I used a profanity instead. So, uh, yeah, five straight weekends that have not been filled with pain while recovering and five straight weekends when I was doing something more than sleeping to recuperate. So, all in all, a pretty damn good weekend and a pretty good damn good streak of damn good weekends. But, you know, this is hell, so don't get used to it. I know. You know, something's going to go wrong. Something's going to go miserably wrong. But more important than my winning streak of fantastic weekends, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term? And, uh, you know... What motivated you to write this? Oh, what could have motivated me to write this? I don't know. Are you following the Pennsylvania... uh, uh, senatorial race no i know that you are though very closely so, yeah so uh dr dr oz okay uh the republican candidate uh who is from new jersey apparently but still running in originally born in pennsylvania or something i don't know, I don't know. like he is. has yeah. and, and like he he just just gets caught with his foot in his mouth mm-hmm. like so many times that john fetterman the democratic candidate oh did he say something about cheesesteaks <laughs> no, oh, okay, no, right. he got like one of the so so Oz had like a, a, a campaign ad where he went to a supermarket to buy uh, just some stuff ostensibly for his for a crudite, um, which then John Fetterman made fun of like that's a veggie platter man, and then also uh, Doctor Oz just got the supermarket wrong because it's like a local Pennsylvania supermarket chain, but he mixed up two of them and sort of like made a portmanteau out of the out okay. of the two of them and just just did everything. it was just and like the the Fetterman campaign has, has been having a field day and because it's very funny and I like making fun of Republicans I was just like you know what let's just go no, with let's that. go with that so repeat that question from hell one question more time question from hell is what everyday food item you uh, do you down to earth person that you are refer to exclusively <laughs> by some obscure foreign term now I understand where you got the question from hell from the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is all merchandise you want the this is all t-shirt the tote bag the face covering the face mask our coffee mug the winter hat the trucker's cap uh the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews heard here on this is hell during the century you can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Sebastian has this week's very complicated hangover cure. Oh, dear. This week's hangover cure is a six-course all-day meal <laughs> in nutritionist Munmun Ganar... Ganarawal. Ganarawal. That's what I'm going with. Okay. New book, Yuktahar, the Belly and Brain Diet, Ganarawal, offers what she calls a simple meal plan that can help you while hungover. A simple meal plan that's six courses long. How is this simple? That's what I want to know. <laughs> the plan is, I mean, it depends on how hungover you are, I guess. Right. Uh, meal one, on rising, have black-seeded raisins that have been soaked overnight. 
Also, drink up the water in which they were soaked. Gross. Uh, meal two, breakfast of coconut smoothie, rice kanji, and porridge. Okay, that I sounds fine. I do not know what rice kanji is. That's kind of a porridge. Okay. <laughs> rice porridge. Meal three, mid-morning, meal comprising uh, coconut water, sugarcane juice, kokum sherbet, and neira, also known as palm nectar. Okay. Meal four, for lunch, have rice or roti, yellow mung dal, and sapsi, which are stir-fried vegetables like greens. All right. Everything sounds fine so far. Meal five. Mid-afternoon meal of pomegranate and banana milkshake. All right. Finally, meal six. Have an early dinner comprising kichdi, a rice and lentil dish with ghee and homemade pickle. All right. Ganirwell adds that water should be consumed throughout throughout the all-day hangover meal. That makes this week's hangover cure a six-course meal featuring Indian cuisine. Well, it just sounds like a good six-course meal. I guess it'll cure your hangover. Coming up, life hacks of the disabled. We will also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And producer slash historian uh, Sebastian Vupper steps back into and through history to provide historical context to some of today's most pressing issues during his newly renamed segment, The Past into the Present. We'll also be telling you who will be the rest of our guests on this week's show. This is not the media. This is hell, and if this was the more establishment media, we likely would not be focusing on today's topic as we would be to distracted by all of the shiny new gizmos that promise to make a far more accessible world for the disabled. The reality of living as disabled is that techno solutions are not the answer the media and so many ableists, those who only see the world through the privilege of ableism, make them out to be. Here to help us have a better understanding of the hacked life of the disabled, why a hacked life is necessary, and what it says about the shortcomings of accessibility for the disabled, writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar Dr. Laura Malden is author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. Welcome to This Is Hell, Laura. Good morning. In your bio, it says Laura's scholarly work focuses on how science, technology, and medicine shape contemporary life and is based on the contention that disability is a political and social category that intersects with all other social categories. How do we understand disability differently? How do we see the disabled differently when we understand them as a social category? Oh, thanks for asking that question. That's a really good one. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think about disability, they think about their own particular body and perhaps a specific impairment. And it's hard to think about that as something social when we kind of connect it in our minds to something that just happens to an individual's body, right? Um, but what we have to understand is that we all live in these bodies. And it was so nice to hear your opening chat this morning um, talking about your own weekend, you know, with your own unreliable body in which we all have. But when we think about disability as a category, I'm talking about um, not focusing too much on the specificity of an impairment in that moment. While that exists and is something important to talk about, there's something that happens in the aggregate 
uh, when we think about the fact that according to the CDC, a quarter of U.S. adults over the age of 18 have a disability and more than half live with a chronic condition. Um, and when I talk about disability as a category, I'm talking about not just those things that we might immediately associate with disability, like the universal symbol of the wheelchair, for example. It's not just that. It could be a chronic illness where your functionality is impacted in some way every day. Um, so it could be um, something like, you know, dementia could be a disability, right? There's all kinds of different ways that it manifests. And when I think about it in the aggregate, I think about the way that our systems are not designed for any of those people. So regardless of the varieties of impairments, all disabled people have to face structural barriers um, that are built into our systems and they affect people with different impairments in different ways, but nevertheless, in the aggregate, it's there. So I think about disability as this broad social category that's made up of a variety of heterogeneous impairments. And those are important to talk about, but in the aggregate, that's what I'm talking about, disability as a category. When it comes to disability as a political category, how difficult is it for the disabled to recognize that they have an affinity with other people who are disabled? As you were saying, a quarter of people uh, can be labeled as the disabled, but those disabilities are very different from one another. Some are very visible when you're looking at some people and some are not very visible. So how difficult is it for the disabled to find affinity to become a political category? Oh, that's also, that's such a great question because I think, um, I think it can be very, very difficult. Um, I think that the first thing that we're all starting from is that disability is highly stigmatized. So we're all beginning from that point. Now, I also talked about uh, how disability is a category that intersects with all these other categories, right? So if you think about men um, identifying as disabled versus women identifying as disabled, because of our um, beliefs about what it means to be masculine and what masculinity means and what it means to quote, be a man, Disability can often be in the idea, a stigmatized idea of disability can be totally in conflict with that sort of idealized notion of what being, quote, being a man is, right? So that might mean that for men, it might be hard to come to uh, an identity around disability. And I think for women, it's hard too, but for different reasons. And then we think about folks of color, you know, who in particular, um, you know, ableism or the devaluation of disabled bodies is so intricately connected with anti-Black racism in the U.S. Um, because there's a whole history there. I really recommend um, the work of disability justice um, folks um, out of, uh, there's Talila Lewis. She does great, or they do great work um, on, uh, identifying the ways in which ableism and racism are so intertwined because we devalue certain types of bodies and ableism is wrapped up in anti-Black racism. So Talila, their work is really um, important in charting the history of that and where that emerges from, particularly in eugenic thought. 
Um, so if we think about um, folks in the Black community, they might have a very different process of relating to this idea of an identity as disabled. Um, and so I think that's a really important question. And I think the most important thing is to say, not everyone who's disabled has to identify. You don't have to, you know, there's no kind of prescription here in terms of, well, you must identify as disabled. I think that we get into trouble when we start to tell people how to identify. But I do think it's important to talk about the possibilities of that and the obstacles to that and the patterns that might appear in that. Do you think then that the disabled community has some shared experience or has some understanding of what it is like to be discriminated against that is similar to the African-American experience? Is there any kind of commonality between the uh, type of discrimination the disabled face and the people of color face? You know, this idea of an analogy between groups um, is something that a lot of people have talked about. And I guess I would just say that systems of devaluation and systems of marginalization are connected. But I think that when we start to talk about, oh, is X like Y, we fail to see that often people are both X and Y. So in, in terms of, we know that the prevalence of disability is higher in communities of color than in white communities. And so I think it's important to think about the ways in which they intersect rather than to think about the ways that they, one is like the other. But I think that for a lot of people, that's kind of a first step in how they start to think about disability as a social category where they go, okay, wait, if this is a social category, so let me think about the other social categories that I understand and think through it as, oh, maybe it's like that. And I want to say, yeah, those systems of oppression are linked, but I also make sure to leave room for people to occupy multiple marginalized um, positions. I hope if that, you know, makes sense. Yeah, that definitely does. You you write, you beginning your article at the Baffler saying, here is what doesn't go viral. You then explain Angel, who worked as a house painter for decades, but had a stroke three years ago that paralyzed the left side of his body. Now his favorite spot is a recliner in his living room. From his perch, he can reach some essential items that he stores on a table to his right, a power screwdriver, painter's tape, and a clipboard with paper and pen. You then describe how Angel installs a striker plate, something every door has that everybody sees every day. They just don't think about it. The piece of metal on the door jamb that connects the lock from the door to the door frame. As Angel is is paralyzed, it's an inconvenient process that is far more time-consuming and complicated than it would be for somebody who is not disabled, as you call it, a a MacGyver-like complication and solution that he comes up with. But as you point out, quote, here's what does go viral, braille decoder rings, sign language translating uh, gloves, haptic footwear for blind folks, stair-climbing wheelchairs, in other words, a preponderance of innovations unveiled to great fanfare that purport to solve disability-related problems, while the press applauds the tech sector's forward thinking and sensitivity to the needs of underserved population. The concerns of disabled people, voiced again and again and again, are disregarded. That would suggest, then, that this technology isn't really to satisfy the needs of the disabled, that the marketing and the message is for somebody else. So who is this technology and its sales pitch for, if not for 
fulfilling the needs of accessibility for the disabled? Um, I think that people are, you know, perhaps um, thinking that what they're doing might be helpful to disabled folks. But the thing is, is that they don't really involve disabled folks in the process. They may not know disabled folks or they're willing to move forward in their ideas and development of things without stopping to think that, oh, disabled people have lived on this earth for a long time and have figured out ways to move around. Maybe we need to talk to them about what their strategies are, what's important to them. But instead, it typically comes from this paternalistic position of like, I'm going to make this thing for these people, assuming that those people don't have any agency or don't have any competencies of their own. And in fact, they do. And these, I'm going to take the example of the sign language gloves, for example. That one is just, I mean, every deaf person I know as a working interpreter, we are just, we're just laughing and horrified at the same time that people would think this was a good idea because deaf people are like, why on earth would I want to wear, first of all, wear gloves. Second of all, you know, sign language, so much of its meaning is actually in facial expressions, not on the hands, which we call non-manual behaviors that are part of the linguistic message. But it's just, it's a complete lack of understanding of how American Sign Language or other sign languages work. Um, so it's so uninformed that I can't help but, you know, I haven't gone and like interviewed these people who are putting forth these ideas, but my assumption, you know, the only thing I can take away from this is that they think they're doing this good deed or they think they're doing something that's going to help this group of people who are somehow helpless, which I think is the first problem that people assume disabled people aren't competent and don't have agency in their lives. And um, second of all, I think they're trying to, you know, appeal to the public when you garner public interest. And when you appeal to public sympathies, where you've, again, you're utilizing this group as a collective, oh, disabled people, as a collective, as this pitiable group, then you're leveraging that pity, which is ableism. You're leveraging that in order to do your feel-good marketing to get public interest and then more investment in what you're doing. And that's what I think people are trying. You know, maybe they're inadvertently doing it because they just don't know that they're being ableist. Um, but that's my, um, my read on this situation. And I don't know if they realize that they are reflecting pity. What do disabled people want rather than pity? Yeah, I would say first thing, uh, disabled people want a more accessible world. And I mean that by I'm talking about, you know, the physical physical environment, right? From, you know, one of the other things that gets brought up a lot are stair climbing wheelchairs, which are just ridiculous and dangerous and don't solve anything. And disabled people are like, build a ramp. What, like, why are we building some contraption that I could never get into and could say not safely navigate um, and not potentially fall out of? It would be a disaster um, when you could just put in a ramp 
why not change the physical environment to make it accessible so that the stair climbing wheelchair is, you know, obsolete, you know, this is not, I mean, it's not needed anyway, but it's the idea that it's needed, make that obsolete. Um, so I think first and foremost, people would like a more accessible world. And I, you know, again, physical infrastructure, but also I'm thinking about access to basic care. I mean, people are out here trying to uh, devise all these wacky contraptions when most disabled people don't have access to basic health care. Um, and they are, um, you know, subject to routine um, diseases and illnesses, just like the rest of us, but can't get care. You know, I think about the very tiny, small percentage of, uh, I'll take one example of, um, you know, clinical exam rooms. They aren't accessible to wheelchairs typically. So I'm, I'm thinking about access to care, both because we don't have universal health care in this country, access to care in a physical kind of way. Um, and then I think about people want a more accessible world. And I mean this through attitudes, people's attitudes around, oh, well, you're not moving fast enough, or you're not productive, so you're not worthwhile, or you must have such a terrible life. I so pity you because you're disabled. Like those kinds of attitudes make the world inaccessible as well. So I think first and foremost, people want a more accessible world. And I think on all of those levels. You mentioned in your writing how the Americans with Disabilities Act, it does impact uh, you know public spaces, but not private spaces. Yet you were just explaining how in medical exam rooms, they're often not handicapped or accessible. When I was just uh, going through all of my surgical and medical problems, at one point I had to be in a wheelchair. I couldn't walk at that point. And the, the mm -hmm. doors for the physical, for the medical exam rooms were wide enough for the wheelchair to go through, but if I was propelling the wheelchair myself, putting my hands on the rails where the wheels are, there is no way I could have gotten through that door because just that a few quarter, half of an inch maybe, of space on each side, my knuckles were hitting the door jam, so I had to have somebody push me through. What does it say to you about our medical system when even the medical exam rooms that we have are not disability compliant. It does the American with Americans with Disabilities Act, doesn't it have to apply to hospitals and medical exam rooms as well? Yeah, and you know, it, this happens all the time, you know, as a New Yorker, I mean, these, the ADA was passed in 1990. I mean, that is a long time, decades ago, and it is still next to impossible to find an accessible restaurant, even though technically by law, restaurants should be accessible. But there's all these, um, you know, if you want to claim it's unreasonable, uh, it's an unreasonable burden to um, like retrofit your space or create accessible entrances and things like that, then you can get um, sort of a waiver. You don't have to comply if you can demonstrate, you know, that it would be like an undue burden. So um, there are ways in which the entities get around the ADA but it is stunning to me that you know and I think it says something about the utter built-in embeddedness of ableism in everything in our world that has always ever been that it just is so there that we don't even conceive of buildings um, that are accessible and we can't figure out how to make them accessible and I think one of the, you know, obviously it costs money 
to do these kinds of things, to make these, to make um, renovations, to retrofit, you know, those things cost money. And that's the rub is that when you live in a capitalist society that certain things cost money, then um, it's really hard to make it happen um, because of that. And it tells you something about what we value versus what we don't. And I just, it's, I think, in medical care in particular, I think the assumption is that medical medicine normalizes. In other words, it takes bodies that are impaired or broken in some way, and it fixes them, that that's their um, goal. But they make no sort of space, as you just recounted, um, for impaired bodies to move through anything other than an ableist designed world. And, and that just... I think speaks volumes about not just the physical, um, not just the physical infrastructure, but also the sort of mentality of medicine itself. Is it simply far too easy to get these waivers to not have to comply with the ADA, or is the problem uh, enforcement in of some way of the ADA? Why is this? Why do we have these shortcomings when it comes to? complying with the ADA. This is something that has never really made sense to me. I have low vision. One of the things that they're supposed to provide Mm -hmm. is in any fast food, this is a silly thing, but uh, any fast food restaurant you go into, they're supposed to have a to-go menu so you can hold one in your hands and get it a little bit closer to your face so you can actually read it if you have low vision. No major chain that I know of has that kind of uh, menu for the people who have low vision. So uh, So is this simply something that is just uh, unenforced, or do they easily just get this waiver to avoid uh, compliance with the ADA? Well, I think it's probably a bit of both. And, you know, I really love that example that you just gave about fast food restaurants because um, uh, someone that I know who's blind was like, these new menus where, at, at least in New York, I don't know if this is happening elsewhere, but when you go to a restaurant now, they have a um, QR code that you're supposed to open with your phone. So that instead of giving you a paper menu, you have this QR code and it, you know, opens the menu right there on your phone. And she's like, oh, this is a lifesaver because now I can have my phone read it out to me. Um, and this makes menus accessible for me now. And I hope we never go back kind of thing. Um, but I think you're exactly right in that. I mean, the enforcement is just not there. I know so many deaf people who have tried to get health care even even though it's mandated, you get you by the ADA that you get an interpreter. Um, the, the healthcare providers will say, "Oh no, we don't do that," or you have to bring your own, or you have to you know pay for your own, or you figure it out. Um, and it's like people say all the time, "Well, the ADA exists. Just don't you just call the ADA?" And there's no one to call. <laughs> there's no like. There's no enforcement of this. There's no one to really call and. You can file, you know, complaints and things, but, you know, the existence of a law, the point is, is that the existence of a law doesn't do anything. And that is a major problem. So what do you think it says about the public's, uh, the way in which they feel about disability when they passed a law that everybody believes is a, an actual law, functioning law, and then there is no enforcement mechanism whatsoever? What does that say about the way in which we view disabilities, whether it's the politicians who wrote up the law or the public that votes uh, in support for people who do back things like the ADA? I think it says a couple of things. And the first thing I think it says is we don't care. I think that that is the bottom line. I think people don't care. 
And why they don't care is gets a little more complicated. Um, and I think, you know, these are just some of my ideas about why people don't care. And I think one of them is that people are, um, they think that disability happens to someone else. They think that it's not part of their own life. So therefore it's not important. And so that's somebody else's problem. And they should, as an individual, figure out how to make their way in the world regardless. Good luck. And I think there's other layers to this too, where people think not only, oh, does this not apply to me, but also I don't want to think about it because I don't want to think about the fallibility of my own body or the fallibility of the people I care for or care about and their bodies. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to consider this. Um, so therefore I'm just not going to care about that. And I think, you know, I, I am a sociologist and not a psychologist, but I do think that there on some level, people have a deep existential discomfort with disability and it prevents people from talking about it and engaging with it. And that's part of the reason for my work too, is I feel like if we can just talk about it and we don't need to, you know, romanticize this, we don't need to get uh, super emotional about it. We can just talk about what are the facts and what do we need to know and how do we just simply make sure that everybody, regardless of an impairment, can move through a space or be in the world. Um, it's just a very basic thing that I think we should be able to talk about. But um, I also think people don't care because they think it's a small portion of the population and we don't need those people, quote unquote, you know, that we can do you know, sell our products or have our events and we don't need, quote unquote, those people. Um, when I'm out, I'm here to say that disability is everywhere. And, um, and if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen to you. If it hasn't happened to somebody who you care about, it will. So um, I think there's a real problem of just a real lack of care. And I think people actively devalue disabled people and think they're somehow lesser. And, and I think all of those things that I just talked about are all part of the puzzle. Do you think there's an increasing lack of care for the disabled? You know, it's interesting because um, one of my favorite disabled sort of writers and activists is Amani Barbarin. And um, one of the things people had asked her over on Twitter was, oh, well, now that, you know, we've had the pandemic and there's so many more disabled people because there's now, you know, millions more disabled people, millions are out of work uh, because they can't work because they're disabled by long COVID. Um, and the Social Security Administration does have a new, um, you know, order out that, you know, long COVID can qualify as a disability, things like this. So over on Twitter, people said, oh, Imani, now that there's all these um, additional disabled people, aren't we going to start caring about it more? And I think, you know, the wisdom of Imani's work is that she pointed out how um, with every sort of surge in disability rights or thinking about disability, there's always a pushback and there's always actually new hostility that comes in the face of that. Um, and part of this I'd like to add is precisely because in late capitalism, resources become more and more concentrated for the wealthy and there's less to spare and spread out um, across the rest of us um, as things get more as things get more scarce, then that hostility rises because we're all fighting for 
um, fewer resources. And so that hostility then comes out in notions of, well, you aren't productive, uh, quote unquote, anymore. You can't work, so you shouldn't get resources, those kinds of things. So I think that, in fact, with more disability conversations and more disabled people and fewer resources and fewer social safety nets, it's actually going to become more hostile rather than less. One of the hostilities I've faced in the past is this phrase of being one of the fake disabled. I was trying to get on a commuter train, for instance, at one time, and I was running late. So I ran down the platform and just got on in time. And when I showed the conductor my disability card uh, to make it so I have a discounted uh, fare to get on the train, he said, oh, you're one of the fake disabled. And I've heard this phrase a lot in the past of people who are supposedly faking their disability in order to get some sort of access to government services, government services, by the way, that are lacking for the disabled. So how do we overcome that idea of uh, the disabled not necessarily being disabled, that somehow it is a huge scam, it is a big fraud that is being perpetrated on the taxpayers of the United States? Yeah, this is such an important conversation. And um, you are, you're right. Your experience is so spot on with so many people that I know that is also their experience. And, um, you know, one of the things is that if you look at the fraud rate, um, that the social security security administration puts out, I think they put it somewhere at less than 1%, uh, when they go back and sort of audit everything and, and look at, um, social security income claims that um, the fraud rate is extraordinarily low. So I think the first thing we have to do is dispel the myth, right? That this actually doesn't exist. Um, And if it does, it's extraordinarily rare. Second of all, I think people think that the government is there for you when you become disabled and they're there to help you. And I also want to dispel that myth (laughs) because it is extraordinarily hard the systems are so hostile. They're so difficult to navigate. You have to prove yourself over and over again. You have to be reevaluated every year. It is an enormous amount of paperwork. Um, and it can be absolutely mortifying to have people um, digging deep into your, you know, the very uh, personal nuances of your impairments um, and questioning those. And everything feels um, everything feels hostile. And so I think the myth is that there's fraud. The myth is that there's a government and there's social safety nets that are there to help you and they're easy to get. Um, I mean, if that was a scam that people were running, that is one of the hardest, you know, (laughs) and you barely get anything from social security income or Medicaid. I mean, these, these, the systems themselves don't even give you that much. So there's not a whole lot to defraud for. So, um, I think we have to dissolve the myth that people fake it uh, on the regular. I think we have to dissolve the myth that there's actually uh, strong social safety nets there. And I also think we have to dissolve the myth that it's anybody's business what disability you have if you can't see it. You know, if it's, we, you talked earlier about, you know, some are visible, some are not. And if something is invisible to you or doesn't make sense to you, um, and yet, you know, someone such as yourself presents a card, you know, my advice is to mind your own business and (laughs) accept uh, what that person is telling you. Um, So we've got a lot of work to do. And that's part of that attitudinal um, barrier. I think, too, that people assume that it's normal to be able-bodied, that that's the typical thing. And 
I would say that's just not true. Um, as I said earlier, some of the stats around a quarter of people are disabled, a uh, quarter of adults, excuse me, um, half of adults live with uh, chronic conditions, 40% um, live with two or more chronic conditions, and we all age into disability, every single one of us. So I feel like people think that having a, a human body means, you know, there's this idea of what a normal human body is and that that's what's typical when it, what's typical is disability. That's, that's what's typical. That's a normal part of life uh, and a normal part of the life course. And for some reason, people think that it's not. And so the idea that there could be this many disabled people, I think offends that assumption. And that is really hard to work against when we can't talk about disability in our culture in a way that isn't stigmatizing. So if we can just start having the conversations and start thinking about, oh, well, this is just a normal part of life. Let's talk about our practical ideas for, for dealing with that. Um, until then, people are gonna have these assumptions. And um, so the attitudinal stuff is, is just as important as dispelling myths. And it makes sense that those assumptions are driven by fear. We are speaking with writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar, Dr. Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. You were mentioning how QR codes can help people in fast food restaurants, for instance. And you write on YouTube, the channel Zabreda Makes It Work is dedicated to specific disability life hacks for tackling functional tasks, while Natalie Fierce's channel shares a glimpse of how different hacks and tips help her create a more accessible world at home. And you mentioned how it, it tells her that the news in the morning plays the radio, uh, talking about Alexa dot speaker, it tells her the news in the morning plays the radio and audio books and reminds her to take medication. And it does all this with voice activation. And thus we land on Amazon. You add over the last few years, I've spoken with dozens of spousal caregivers and some of their ill or disabled partners across the country about the hacks they use to navigate the world. And almost every person I spoke to talked about the key role Amazon plays in their lives. Though generally a malevolent force, uh, Amazon is also a tool many disabled people have come to rely on to fill basic needs that are that our shambolic uh, healthcare system often declines to recognize, let alone meaningfully address. So is it that Amazon purposely set about serving the disabled community and they should be commended for it? Or is it our healthcare system is so underserving of the disabled that any online retail platform is better at providing the tools needed by the disabled for accessibility? Is this how great Amazon is? Is this indicative of that? Or is it indicative of how awful U.S. healthcare is? I think it's indicative of how awful U.S. healthcare is. And I think the fact that Amazon has all of the supplies that they do and all of the equipment that they have on there, I don't know that there was any good intent on that in terms of we're going to try to do this for people. I think it was probably one of the best ways to make money. I mean, if you look at our GDP, a huge portion of it is um, medical related, uh, medicine, healthcare overall. And so the healthcare market is actually uh, always growing. And this is a great way to make money if you're a company such as Amazon. So I would, you know, stake my uh, bet on the intentions of Amazon, which is to make more money. But I also think that because our healthcare system is so bad and so particularly bad at meeting 
very basic functional needs of disabled folks that um, the equipment and supplies that Amazon offers and offers at a lower price than other uh, retailers um, is absolutely a symptom of a larger problem with our healthcare system. Is accessibility, though, is it just a matter of, you know, poverty or having the resources in order to make certain that your life is accessible? Because you're right, people were often driven to Amazon because once they were discharged from rehab environments, they encountered obstacle after obstacle in their inaccessible homes. Bathrooms are particularly difficult to make accessible on a budget, and few Medicaid plans cover essential medical supplies like gloves, wipes, and bed pads, which is disturbing, if one even qualifies for Medicaid <coughs> to begin with. So they search Amazon for hours to find a shower chair. They can jury-rig as a commode if they, if they pair it with a five-gallon paint bucket or a shower chair that is mounted on a long bench with rails and then can be easily slid over and into a tall bathtub. These are things caregivers often find on their own and then share with their support groups, posting online to alert others that they've discovered something new. And this is how they share hacks. Is this something only being experienced by disabled people who are in poverty? Are these hacks something only a small subset of disabled must deal with, or is this something that can be in any of our future, no matter our level of wealth? It is something that is in any of our futures, no matter your wealth. And I can say this with certainty, because if I look at the demographics of the people who participated in my research, um, you know, annual household incomes ranged from you know, something like $15,000 a year to $860,000 a year. And it did not matter uh, what their um, particular, you know, economic class was. It was more about, oh, I now have this situation and I have to figure out how to navigate my, my home. And even people who had money, uh, I will say this, some people had enough money to be able to renovate their homes so that they could build a roll-in shower, for example, such that they could just roll the, a wheelchair right into the shower space and not have to worry about getting over the lip of a tub or something like this. Um, that Those people ab absolutely exist. It's just that their accessibility um, looks a little bit different because they're able to to actually renovate and build uh, an accessible space. Um, I had an, one couple who had um, widened their hallways. So they'd actually taken their hallways and made them wider to accommodate a power chair. Um, and others had installed grab bars uh, all throughout the house. Others you know, were able to install a ramp on the front of their house, the, these kinds of things. It doesn't matter what your class status is. Um, because the world is built in an inaccessible manner, the way that you will figure out how to move through it, that's where I think the differences are because everybody is different and interacts with their you know, intimate domestic space in their own way. So everybody's going to have to figure out a way to do it differently. But I think the extent to which people can rebuild their environments versus um, retrofitting them versus sort of hacking them with really, like you were talking about the shower chair with the bucket kind of thing, the, like the actual hacks might look different, but everybody's got to do it.
You write that Amazon has stepped into the breach to fill a role all but relinquished by the healthcare system is indicative of a broader failure of social provisioning in the United States. So considering what impact private provisioning of public services has had, what do you think the future of social services looks like? Will there be fewer services and even more slowly delivered services while we are left to hacking all of our own lives, whether we're disabled or not? Yeah, I think we're at a juncture here, actually. I'm thinking particularly about the durable medical equipment market. And durable medical equipment um, is something that is part of um, how the government sort of mandates the cost of equipment and what people have to pay for, what they don't have to pay for, or how much of it they have to pay for. One thing that has started happening is that um, we contract out services um, for durable medical equipment with corporations. And what's ended up happening, there was a recent article in The Nation about this, um, is that private equity firms are getting involved now in durable medical equipment markets. And for wheelchair users, this means that they're buying up all these mom and pop kind of wheelchair repair places. Um, and instead, now these private equity firms are um, consolidating and it means much longer waits. So when you get a when you are prescribed a wheelchair, so first of all, not everybody can just go out and get a wheelchair. You have to have a prescription for it. Um, and then uh, your insurance, depending on your insurance, will pay for a certain amount of that, all of it, none of it, it just depends. Um, but if you have a prescription for say a power chair, um, that power chair, every single power chair is custom made, custom built for that one person's body and their particular needs. And it can take months then when you have these private equity firms sort of getting in and consolidating and, and uh, making it so that we have fewer options. It means that people have longer waits to get their evaluation for the wheelchair. And then once you get the evaluation, then you have to go for a fitting and a measurement. And so you go for that and you have to wait possibly months for that. And then you have to wait once they measure you and fit you and everything. Then you have to wait additional months to get the final wheelchair. And then you have to make sure that it actually fits and does all the things that it, you need it to do. And as you might imagine, if you need a power chair, you're in a little bit of an emergency in terms of moving around and being mobile. But if you're waiting months upon months upon months just to get this piece of equipment, um, I mean, that is it's horrible. And that's why people jump on Amazon and buy manual chairs for, you know, maybe a hundred bucks and have it delivered the next day as a stopgap. That doesn't mean it's necessarily safe, but it's something and it's not, you know, the best. And again, it's not, may not be safe, but it is something that can just sort of, you know, be a stopgap measure until you can get what you need. And I think we have some choices coming um, in terms of how we want to fund infrastructure and social safety nets and, and things like, you know, if we want to develop a universal healthcare system and we want to think about getting private equity out of things like this, um, or if we want to go full privatization, you know, these are the themes that you talk about all the time um, that we have choices to make around whether or not we want to fund and support these social safety nets and, and programs, or if we want to privatize everything and have um, have private 
corporations sort of dictating this kind of stuff, which has very real impacts on all of us. And again, because we don't like to talk about disability, we don't like to think about disability, we think that's not our problem, that it's just those people, or it's somehow this rare thing, uh, when it absolutely is relevant to every single one of us. And as you're saying, uh, the, this uh, kind of this issue of private equity getting in the durable, durable, uh, durable medical equipment uh, arena. My brother, who my late brother, who had MS, he was trying to get a wheelchair, a new wheelchair for himself, for several years before he died. The new wheelchair never came through. The process that he was going through to try to get that new wheelchair that was specifically for his needs through Medicaid was just laborious and it was completely ineffective. Can the private market provide accessibility for the disabled or is this something that only the public sector can do? And if so, why? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And I think the thing is, is that anybody, I think either system could potentially do it, but what is the price that we have to pay for either one? And it seems to me that if we let private equity firms or private corporations get involved in this, we deal with the inevitabilities of capital and the inevitabilities of consolidating that capital for the corporations over the um, quickness um, and uh, appropriateness of providing the actual uh, equipment, such as the wheelchair that you were just talking about with your brother. Of course, those with money can buy it and get it made faster, probably. I mean, I'm, uh, there's there's ways that people who can afford it can make these kinds of things happen. Um, but th- there's a price to pay for everybody else, right? And then if we put it solely in the public sector, then we have this age-old problem of the idea that government can't work and the idea that it's just, I mean, I believe you just said your brother's wheelchair was gonna be through Medicaid. So, you know, of course, Medicaid, is a state run and it's run differently in all 50 states, which is a whole nother conversation (laughs) that it's run so differently across state lines Um, and that it can be notoriously slow. The, the, um, you know, hostile systems, the administrative burden, all these sorts of things that are endemic, we think to public sector. But, you know, I I think we have to think about, the things that we invest in are the things that um, have a chance of getting better. And I think that if we can figure out how to invest in these social safety nets and in these programs and make them run efficiently, that's the idea for me, that's the ideal. Um, But we can't do that if we just put everything onto the public sector and then refuse to actually fund the public sector. And of course, that's a big conversation that's happening right now with Uh, the Build Back Better uh, infrastructure deal, where they cut out a lot of the home and community-based services um, funding and all of these issues are issues we're actively debating. Uh, And I think we we definitely have choices to be made and they need to be made very quickly. Um, And we'll see how this turns out. You write of flashy new technology prototype, prototypes that never get built for these it's kind of disability technology that never really happens. Quote, they get attention because they reflect broader ableist assumptions that disability is some kind of singular tragic event requiring a paternalistic and ultimately irrelevant solution, a techno solution. So uh, you also add that our cultural obsession with techno solutionists 
thinking that suppresses our ability to imagine alternatives to this individualist vision. How does seeking a techno solution reflect individualism and an individualist vision? Does the hyper-individualism of neoliberalism lead to a popular obsession with techno solutions, especially for the disabled? Yeah, I mean, I think that, first of all, people think about, again, we can go back to the very beginning of our conversation where we think, oh, those people, those poor people that need help, let's give them a... Uh, I believe in the article, I talk about it as like a, a technological band-aid. You know, just put, let's give them something to fix their abnormal interaction with our normal world. And that's where that individual is thinking as though it's this one-off thing, it's this one person, um, and it's they're the site of the problem, that their body is the site of the problem. Rather than thinking, oh, this is something that's actually typical it's a normal part of the human life course. And it reflects actually on the ways that we have built our systems, that it reflects our systems being built with particular bodies in mind, uh, typical, uh, typical assumptions about what kinds of people are in the world, are out in public, are um, part of our society. And so when we think about um, the individual body that doesn't fit this idealized notion of a normal person, then you are locating the site of the problem on the individual. And that's that individual thinking that we need to create a, a technology specifically to mend that, um, that interaction between that one person and the larger environment, rather than thinking, oh, the site of the problem is actually the social system, uh, our, the way that we built our environment, um, are thinking about who disabled people are, what they want, these kinds of things. Um, if we actually think on that sort of collective systems level, then suddenly that individual you know, technology for that person is not the answer. The answer is instead in rethinking how we design our world, rethinking the systems that we build, and rethinking our assumptions about um, what kinds of people are part of our public. One last question for you, Laura. We have been speaking with writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar, Dr. Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. Laura is currently writing a book that tells the stories of disabled people and caregivers as they try to survive in an ableist America. You can find out more about Laura at lauramalden.com. That's M-A-U-L-D-I-N. And follow Laura on Twitter at Malden underscore Laura. And we hope to have you back on the show when you do have your new book uh, published because it would be wonderful to have you back on for another conversation. Uh, but one last question for you, Laura, and I promise that we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You quote Magnolia in Maryland, saying of her disability hack support group, quote, many of the small solutions that I use for whatever little thing is going wrong, I've gotten from other members of the group. They're always willing to share suggestions about big things and small. But these support groups may never have happened unless the U.S. healthcare system had not done such a horrible job at serving the disabled. So are the failings of U.S. healthcare transforming into any political organizing or activist success for the disabled community when it comes to improving accessibility? Well, you know, I think there are, it, there's an interesting sort of two spheres as I see it. 
And one sphere is um, what I would call uh, disability communities. And I say plural because there is no one disability community. There are so many. And um, there's differences within those communities in politics, in particularities of impairment. Um, there are all kinds of groups that have emerged, um, particularly thinking um, of the group Sins Invalid, which is on um, the West Coast, uh, who's the preeminent sort of disability justice movement. But there's all kinds of disability justice organizations that have been around for a very long time and have been doing collective care work for each other. There's all kinds of impairment-specific um, groups um, you know, there are folks who are largely bedbound, for example, uh, who have groups on Facebook and, you know, talk all the time and support each other. And there's, so there's these, this whole sort of emergence, uh, well, they've been around for a long time, but I think emergence of our, in our sort of larger consciousness that they exist, uh, of disability communities. And then on the, I would say another sphere would be caregiver communities. And I see this uh, often siloed by disease type. So there's, for example, MS support communities. Uh, there's the, you know, the MS society. There's um, the Alzheimer's groups. There's um, ARP has, you know, support groups for anybody who's caring for uh, most of those folks are caring for their aging parents. So you might have adult children caring for their aging parents. So you have it siloed by disease type or siloed by particular type of caregiver. There's the Well Spouse Association, which is the national organization for people who are spousal caregivers who are caring for their partner. Um, there's So there's all kinds of communities and there's these caregiver communities and there's these disability communities. What I find interesting is that um, both of these spheres are trafficking in disability knowledge and disability culture because they're sharing information and sharing experiences. And I think both of these spheres have the potential to come together um, and think through the political implications on sort of policy questions such as, you know, funding, build back better and home and community based services, which help disabled people live in their communities. And when they're living in their communities, they're often relying on unpaid family caregivers. So if we're fully supporting home and community-based services, it makes disabled folks living at home a possibility. And it also means that they can have the support they need such that unpaid family caregivers aren't um, doing the bulk of the, the labor. So I think there's some really interesting overlaps and there's a lot going on um, that could be sort of brought together and uh, I think we could have a real um, sort of powerhouse if, if these kinds of communities were to, to band together. I hate to give you a follow-up question, but so how difficult is disability solidarity considered, considering all the different forms of disability and considering the fact that there are opinions from caregivers and there is also the community of the disabled, how difficult is disability solidarity? it can be extremely difficult. I think people have very different experiences. Uh, again, you know, disability is so heterogeneous. There's so many different kinds of impairments. And, you know, I think people in black and brown communities have different experiences of disability than those who are white. Um, I, you know, there's all kinds of other categories that come into play that mean that it's a very rich tapestry, as it were, um, and just like any other social movement that's trying to coalesce around a shared investment in something, um, it can be very difficult. And I also think that historically, 
caregivers have, um, I think, talked about disabled people as, or in the way that they talk about caregiving burden, that's a phrase that often gets used. So the, the burden of care, caregiving burden, or caregiver stress, you know, these kinds of things. Caregivers are stressed and burdened, not because of disability and not because disability exists. They're stressed and burdened because our systems are ableist and they don't provide the support that everybody needs. So I think the, you know, one of the biggest uh, obstacles to finding solidarity across these communities is that I think the onus is on a lot of the caregiving side to understand how ableism works and that ableism is impacting their lives and that um, disability is not necessarily uh, the problem, although certainly the realities of day-to-day -day impairment can absolutely be difficult and at times tragic uh, when it involves um, degenerative diseases, terminal illnesses, things like that. You know, those kinds of things are realities. Um, but I think that what we have to do is get across um, group uh, understanding of how ableism is impacting all of us, whether you're disabled or not. And to me, that's the key. We have been speaking with Dr. Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World, uh, for an archive of detailed examples of disability hacks sourced from the spousal caregivers and disabled folks who participated in the research for this article, as well as the uh, project of uh, the Social Science Research Council. You can visit disabilityathome.org. Thank you so much for being on our show today, Laura. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Okay, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. Seriously, you prove us wrong and we'll send you a This Is Hell t-shirt. If what you just heard from Laura Malden on accessibility and the hacks needed by the disabled to have anything close to accessibility. And if that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding, or maybe it just made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, especially for the disabled and their caregivers. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. You can also show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and just clicking on support. On last week's Patreon podcast, we had the return of our semi regular segment, This Week in Hell, when I share what the previous week's show or shows meant to me, what I got out of our interviews with guests. It's a summary of what really struck me about our conversations with Stephen Thrasher, author of Viral Underclass, our discussion on jobs, guns, crypto, and skyrocketing rents with Algernon, Don't Call Me, Antigone Austin, even though I did that several times on social media, of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and our talk with Dr. Heather Berg on her Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex Workers or Labor's Vanguard. The left ignores them at its peril. While writing that monologue, I realized that all of those exchanges with last week's guests had a lot to do with inequality and that the line of demarcation within U.S. politics today seems to be whether or not you support the concept of equality 
that is enshrined in the Declaration of Independence with the patriarchal phrase, all men are created equal. And here I was thinking that the Civil War ended over 250 years ago. Oh, silly. Or 150 years ago. Silly, silly me. We also shared our February 28, 2009 interview with Walden Bellow, a former vice presidential candidate of the Philippines, a former member of the Philippines House of Representatives, a longtime environmentalist, social activist, and writer who was arrested only two weeks after the election of now President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. I thought I would never say that. Uh, he was elected in late May. The new President Marcos is the son of the former president and dictator Marcos, of whom Walden was highly critical. Walden was arrested on charges of cyber libel that were brought forward by an aide to Vice President Sarah Duterte, as in the Duterte family that just left the presidency after a notorious run of human rights abuses including extrajudicial killings, an abusive administration that was also highly criticized by Walden. At the time of our talk back in 2009, Walden's most recent writing included the Transnational Institute article, The Global Collapse, A Non-Orthodox View, and Globalization, uh, wherein he writes that globalization has ensured that economies that went up together in the boom would also go down together with unparalleled speed in the bust. And he also had an article at the Foreign Policy and uh, Focus website, Asia, the Coming Fury, both of which uh, proved to be incredibly, incredibly prescient with spot-on analysis of the shortcomings of globalization in 2009 and a prescient analysis of how globalization could fail us again during and would fail us during the ongoing uh, pandemic, just as it will with worsening climate change. Meanwhile, the media is currently blaming it all on supply chain issues, which for those of you who do not speak neoliberal apologist, actually means globalization. Remember, every time you hear the media or politicians or pundits complaining about supply chain issues, what they're really saying is globalization is failing, but you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. It's now time for producer and historian Sebastian Vupper and his renamed segment providing the historical context we need to understand what's happening right now, the past into the present. The past inside the present. Inside the present. Am I ever going to get this right? At least I, I didn't say inside the future, yeah, as I said online. You're so. getting there. You're getting uh, there. Yeah, a lot of rust I'm shaking <laughs> off of myself here. <clears throat> anyway, uh, I still am talking about the Nazis today and their horrifying deeds. Uh, and this will keep happening. Dealing with the long fallout of these guys and what they did is something that a lot of leftist Germans still do and probably likely will, hopefully, I guess, always do. This is part two of me talking about the Holocaust and some of the details and what it all means. Because I feel like we sometimes forget that. Because remembering what the Holocaust means at all times is not really possible, because it is so awful, so monumentally, vastly horrible, that for sanity's sake, we simply can't. I, for one, am at least glad that I am not so desensitized that I no longer have any... Uh, that, that, uh, that researching all of this stuff ha no longer has any impact on me, um, which is why I have to talk about it now. Also, I want to stress why I do not believe in the kind of free speech absolutism that many Americans practice. Because, well, I grew up in a country where everything Nazi is 
illegal. And seeing a swastika in public or a Nazi slogan as a tattoo is basically witnessing a crime. Which is a sensibility that Americans lack to their own detriment, I think. I mean, just look around what's going on in this country. Uh, last week... I talked about where Nazi anti-Semitism came from, about the long history of European and, by extension, American anti-Semitism. This week, I am going to talk about the nitty-gritty of the so-called final solution of the Jewish question. So, be warned, this is not going to be pretty. Remember, I said the Nazis conceived of the Jewish people not as a religious community, but as a distinct biological racial group. And this thinking became state policy with the Nuremberg race laws in 1935. These were basically American Jim Crow laws, but rejigged. Instead of determining who was and who was not black by ancestry, the Nazi race laws now determined who was and who was not genetically, at least by state policy, Jewish. Wer Jude ist, bestimme immer noch ich. Who is and who isn't a Jew is something only I will decide. Supposedly uh, a quote by Hermann Göring, one of Hitler's most powerful underlings. Based on the American models, the Nazis created a very intricate scheme to determine who, in their view, counted as a Jew. And this meant that certain people who had one Jewish grandparent were no longer allowed to marry other people with Jewish grand grandparents, regardless of them being practicing Jews, converts to other religions, or atheists. Those deemed Jewish were also exempt from holding certain jobs, the number of which increased steadily over time. And the initial goal of these measures was, in the Nazis' own words, to compel Jews, all Jews, to leave Germany. The Reich was supposed to be made Judenfrei, free of Jews. Many Jewish people who could afford to, who could afford to do so emigrated. Some of some went to neighboring countries of Germany, where they would eventually be caught up uh, and deported to the extermination camps as uh, Germany gobbled up half of Europe in World War II when, once that went underway. Um, some went to British Palestine, where the Jewish people had been buying up land for quite some, quite some time at this point. And uh, some went even further if they had the money and the connections and went further to further afield places like the United States. But the number of those Jewish people fleeing Germany were not large enough to satisfy the Nazis. The measures that were supposed to compel the Jews to leave didn't work, or rather they didn't work fast enough. And not for a lack of trying, the Nazis also stoked the inherent flames of anti-Semitism in the German people. One of the most egregious ways they did uh, they did that was the newspaper Der Stürmer, the Stormer, a newspaper published by Hitler's personal buddy Julius Streicher. If you haven't looked it up, there are copies you can read online. You don't even need to know much German to get the gist of it. The Stürmer was basically Fox News for Nazi Germany, aimed at the lowest common denominator and just front to back filled with hateful propaganda depicting how absolutely awful, weak, despicable, but also dangerous Jews were. And the Stürmer used both, uh, used both written smear pieces, sloganeering, and many, many, many quote-unquote satirical cartoons for this. If you couldn't afford to buy it, not to worry. The government put up so-called Stürmerkästen, Stürmerboxes, in most towns and cities where people could look at the newest edition laid out page by page behind glass. 
And so just imagine what it means being Jewish in that context. The government actively cuts down on your rights. And then the government invests in public display cases that scream in large letters, the Jews are our damnation and with the stormer against the Jews. And this, by the way, is what neo-Nazi website, the Daily Stormer, is a reference to. So, yeah, just uh, should give you should give you some pause there. And then the war started and things got worse from there. First, the Nazis decided that if they don't leave on their own, the Jews will just be evacuated. In the early war years, uh, this meant they would be violently deported to concentration camps. Uh, so that then later they could be more easily expelled collectively into some part of Eastern Europe that was to be designated after the Soviet Union was beaten in the war. Historians are not quite agreeing on when exactly and why exactly this tactic then became outright eradication. As the German army plowed through Eastern Europe in the summer of 1941, they were already followed by Einsatzgruppen, basically roving death squads of the SS, the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, and German police divisions, uh, who would basically murder every Jew they could find left alive. In Eastern Europe, and uh, but at that point, there were no extermination camps just yet. And I guess at this point, we need to talk about a fine distinction. Nazi concentration camps were not all equal. Some were only meant to, well, concentrate on desirable elements, such as communists, queers, Romani people, and Jews. And those camps were already inhumanely harsh, and frequently those were camps where the inmates were used for industrial slave labor. All of German industry used concentration camp slave labor during the war, by the way, with barely any exceptions. Extermination camps were a later invention, starting in 1942. Those were camps built for the sole purpose of turning people into corpses, or rather into ashes, as fast and efficient as possible. Extermination camps also contained work camps, but there the work was meant to be just another, another tool to fabricate corpses. Through the combination of overwork and lack of nutrition and absence of healthcare. When Hitler made the decision for this path, again, it's not entirely clear. The decision came from him, though. He was the Führer, after all. All the lines of command just concentrated on him. One interpretation was that, with the attack on the Soviet Union imminent, Hitler was giddy and decided to stop with the pussyfooting and instead finally decided... Uh, to end all of this Jew nonsense f fast rather than slow uh, over a few decades. Another interpretation was that the Nazis had initially thought that after the quick defeat of the Soviets, they could then just dump all the collected Jews on them and be done with it. And when the German armies got stuck in the muck of Russia uh, in the fall and then in the snow of Russian winter, they basically decided that if they can't dump them, they would rather just kill them all. And here we come to extermination, to the Holocaust, to the Shoah, whatever you want to call it. There were more methods of eradication than just the gas chamber. That actually came relatively late. The first method of eradication were the aforementioned Einsatzgruppen of the SS, uh, who rounded up Jews in occupied parts of Eastern Europe and just basically shot them. An illustrative example here is the Babi Yar massacre. In Kiev, it took them a little over two days to shoot more than 30,000 rounded up people. And now, that's one of those things I can't keep in my active memory too long for sanity's sake, but just think about that. The Nazis rounded up all the Jews of occupied Kiev 
30,000 people, marched them outside the city limits to a ravine called Babi Yar. And there they had groups of 10 people, men, women, and children, disrobe, walk into the ravine, and then they were shot. One group, after another, after another, for two days. Two days! Like, that's just the sheer just just madness of that until the ravine was filled with dead and dying jews men women children all of them and the other method outlined by reinhard heydrich one of the chief architects of the holocaust was death by overwork as i said before the jews were to be marched east eastwards where they were uh, would be building roads and many would die since there would not be anywhere close to adequate provisions or care. And the remainder of those could then be shot. And that also happened. But all that shooting unarmed people took a mental toll on the poor Aryan SS men. So the Nazis, being crafty Germans, came up with an idea. Another Nazi project had been getting rid of all disabled people, and so here we are again with synergy, uh, because they were deemed a drain on society. In the process of finding methods of killing those deemed having quote-unquote lives unworthy of life, the doctors had found the fastest and cleanest way was death by mass asphyxiation. And what initially started as a hermetically sealed room that was then connected to the exhaust of a diesel truck became essentially the proof of concept of a gas chamber. And no more poor SS men had to suffer, especially since in the extermination camps, most of the work in disposing of the bodies was done by inmates rather than by Germans. Um, and on top of all of this, many Jews and people the Nazis fought of, uh, thought of as such who evaded murder were simply sterilized in, in the concentration camps. Because, again, this is about the eradication of a biological race, right? And some of them were then afterwards still murdered, even though they had been sterilized. Also, quite a lot of people at extermination and concentration camps were being subjected to nightmarish medical experiments, some of which actually yielded insights the medical profession at large still kind of relies on, um, without necessarily always acknowledging where these findings were initially made and to whose detriment. So... It's really the quality of the Holocaust that makes it the world's worst genocide. The targeted, scientifically refined industrial attempt to extinguish a specific group of people while extending quite extensive resources to do so, that's what makes it special. The Holodomor, so Stalin's starving of the Ukraine, was horrible and might have yielded more victims, but it, as was the Great Leap Forward and the famines that followed that, but neither Stalin nor Mao nor Pol Pot went, up, went as far out of their way as the Nazis did. Nobody else built literal corpse factories. And that is why it is still so important to never forget. That is why it is necessary to time and again remind myself and others of what the Holocaust really means, of of what being a Nazi means, or, or who it is that the people today who celebrate the Nazis really are looking up to. And why we need to remember that somehow this most awful thing that people have ever done to other people was done, indeed, by, well, people, like people like, like you and me. And, uh, and that it could, under the right circumstances, happen again. And that is why we must do everything that we possibly can to prevent that from happening again. And that's this edition of... Oh, you have outro music? Please play.
I don't have outro music. Not damn I it. Don't have- I did like that outro music there for a second, though. <laughs> uh, and as so, as a disabled uh, grandson of a Roma grandmother, I probably would not have made it through the Holocaust or through World War II if I was yeah. in Germany. Unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, very unlikely. And uh, because anytime somebody mentions Hitler, it's always uh, good to bring up a joke. So there was a uh, there's a uh, doc a faux documentary. It's actually a documentary about the uh, late stand up uh, or I should say sorry stuntman and comedian Super Dave Osborne, and they show some of the clips that he did in the he had done in the past. And one of the things that he used to do is he would just edit himself into interviews. And there's one interview that he's edited into where Larry King asks Super Dave Osborne. How do you feel about the controversy over your work? How do you feel about the furor? To which Super Dave Osborne replies, Who, Hitler? I guess I'd say I'm disappointed. (laughs) Which is a pretty fantastic line. Sebastian, remind us, what is this week's question from Al? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is... I'm very disappointed in Hitler, by the way. Yeah, I mean, really. <laughs> uh, this week's quest- question from hell is, what everyday food item do you, a down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term? And uh, Brandon S. on Facebook replies with, Sanger. It's Australian for sandwich. Okay. Uh, Kelly H. says, ramen. Okay. Uh, Michael Perrine says croissant. <laughs> All right. Uh, Fabio L says soylent green. <laughs> That's a good answer. Uh, Steve Chipola says pasta. Okay. All right. Uh, and Ronaldo. Instead of M- those Italian noodles that you're putting on my plate? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And Ronaldo M says, obscure and foreign to whom? Kind of depends on what language is being spoken in the kitchen. I mean, yes, he has a point, but also. Please, everybody, let's not overthink the question from now. <laughs> uh, and lastly, Shane M. says, I call meatloaf a, be- a buff baguette. <laughs> That's very nice. At least it isn't Salisbury steak. Uh, thanks to Sebastian Vooper for producing as well as another edition of The Past Inside the Present. Correct? You did it. You I did, did it. it. It's actually correct in the script here, and I don't refer to you as Antigone either. Sebastian, who are our upcoming guests this week here on This Is Hell? Our upcoming guests on This Is Hell are... So tomorrow we have Penny M. Von Eschen, um, author of the new book Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War, Triumphalism, and Global Disorder since 1989. And then who's going to be on Wednesday's show? Um, we don't need to give Betty all of her background. On Wednesday, we have Dean Baker, uh, who talks about his most recent writing, including structuring the economy to give money to the rich is inflammatory. And of course, inflationary. Inflationary uh, or inflammatory. Either way, it's both. Both, yes. And of course, as always, later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi and a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. And Sebastian, before we go, I have a vacation story I want to share with you. While I was up north with family on our annual summer vacation a couple weeks ago, an ice cream truck came down the road by the cabins where we stay. It's a rare occasion when an ice cream truck comes by because there's not very many people up there. But when they do, they're usually uh, the run-down variety of ice cream truck with uh, malfunctioning music that makes Pop Goes the Weasel sound utterly 
satanic. Not that there's anything wrong with Pop Goes the Weasel sounding utterly satanic, or that that's much different from the standard version of Pop Goes the Weasel. Uh, and this year's truck, there's, they're, they're always different with no driver seemingly able to keep the route going from year to year. This year's truck uh, looked like someone bought a used panel truck, painted it white, and taped ice cream posters on the outside. Nothing about it suggested they had obtained the necessary licenses or met any legal requirements or regulations. So my, na- my nephew got in line anyway. He saw that they had Chaco Taco. And with Klondike ending the Chaco Taco, he asked the driver how much they were. The guy driving the hinky ice cream truck said, 10 bucks, $10 for a Chaco Taco. So my nephew, everything else was like two bucks. My nephew, who later admitted he didn't want a Chaco Taco anyway, he was just curious about how much they would cost, seeing as how they were going out of production. So my nephew tells the guy, no thanks, that's too expensive. But before the ice cream truck driver could take the Chaco Taco back, an older woman who was with her family and also in line volunteered to pay for my nephew's $10 Chaco Taco, oh, wow. which again, my nephew didn't really want anyway. So he tried to refuse, but the woman refused his refusal. And in the end, my nephew survived eating a Chaco Taco in the middle of nowhere in northern Michigan that he bought from a very suspicious ice cream truck and ice cream truck driver that was paid for by a complete stranger. Very disturbing Chaco Taco story for everybody who's out there. Bringing you that kind of bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>